Welcome to the Alder Podcast. I am Michael Davidson. I'm the host of this thing. So this podcast, it's like a watering hole where we can spotlight people and ideas that are taking us to incredible places, shaping culture, uh, making the world a better place, especially for future generations. I said Alder Podcast, but you might be asking, well, what in the world is Alder? Alder, it's a community of pretty influential people who are committed to making the world better for future generations. It's about living a legacy, not waiting to leave one. Uh, think of Alder a bit as a verb, enabling leaders to act for causes and missions that make this society better. Now, our guest today is kind of a legend in our own community, and he's one of the most important modern thinkers today. But he's also a bit of a citizen statesman. He's a bit of a renaissance man. You could throw all kinds of words at Jared. He's a man of many superlatives. So in the boardroom, he's currently president of Global Affairs at Goldman Sachs. Before that, he was the CEO of Jigsaw, a tech company that we work closely with on our venture philanthropy initiatives to counter violent extremism. And in fact, Jared was a pretty big leader behind that initiative, and he was an incredible driving force in making that happen with a number of others in our community. And Jared's, he's, he's one of the most sophisticated leaders on uh, global affairs, international security, international relations, but, and he's trusted on both, by both parties. He's been an advisor to Secretary Rice, been an advisor to Secretary Clinton. Uh, so, but I think he gets there in all these different domains in this way with a wide range of respect because he's embodiment of this belief that deeply understanding ideas, deeply understanding their force on history and the individuals in them can better yourself and can better a society at large. And that's, that's really the ethos of generational leadership. So to that end, he's authored a bunch of books and a lot of them being New York Times bestsellers, dealing with everything from presidents who never aspire to be president to the American response to the Rwandan genocide and technology and more. Now, his latest book tackles a pretty fascinating question about the hero's journey of some of history's most influential presidents. After serving as a leader of the free world, what in the world comes next? Now, this isn't just studying a bunch of old white guys. This is studying something that everyone can relate to. We all want to re reinvent ourselves. We all want to live authentically. We all want to live with purpose. And they have their trouble doing it too. So this is something that we could connect with. Um, his book is called Life After Power, Seven Presidents and Their Search for Purpose Beyond the White House. It comes out February 13th, so I really do hope y'all pre-order it, shoot bulk by it, because this is a conversation that needs to be had. And the more that you could dialogue with others on the topic, the better you'll be, the better these ideas will spread, and the better the world becomes. So, let's dig in. I want to figure out how did Jared become such a renaissance man. Let's talk about little Jared. What was little Jared curious about? What are some dumb things that, that little Jared did at, at how you stumbled into this uh, voracious curiosity that translates into these great ideas that other people could wrestle with and integrate into their own lives? So look, first of all, it's great to be here, Michael. I, I would say the, the through line in my life has, in some respects, less to do with substance um, and more to do with impulse. So I've always been a curious, like, so let's start with kind of what's in it. I've always been a very curious kid and lots of us are curious. It's a question of how much we let our impulsiveness within that curiosity guide us. And I just have always been somebody who never counted to 10, right? So every job transition that I've had, I like don't remember ever accepting a job. I just kind of showed up there one day. And so there, there's not a, there's not a substantive through line. I mean, I work at Goldman Sachs today. I worked at Google and Alphabet before. I worked at the State Department before that. And my childhood passion, which is also my adult passion, is presidential history. Uh, on paper, those things have very little to do with each other. Um, I've come to recognize through lines and all of it. But the honest truth is I've always viewed my career uh, as somebody who manages a portfolio of my curiosities, and I'm constantly reevaluating and curating and diversifying that portfolio so that I'm long on the things that excite me most and I'm short on the things that I'm less excited about. And where there's gaps in my curiosity, I try to kind of add things to my portfolio that just kind of test am I interested in this? Am I interested in that? I love it. Well, it served you well. Uh, I want to pull a couple threads. I just, I just Jared the man here. Um, the impulses have led you to do some pretty adventurous things. And, and so I want to touch base on just to show how far you're willing to go in pursuit of understanding these ideas and communicating them. 
if you could give us um, you know, any number of stories that uh, either recent or when you were younger, one of my favorites, although people could get any number of your books and, and learn this story, but when you were hanging out with the the youth of Hezbollah um, and what that taught you, but just anything that you've you've done, you've been in hostile countries that if they caught you, they could kill you. So give us some of that uh, flavor of the Jared, the adventurous Jared Cohen. So it never, I never go to a country looking for danger. I'm, I'm actually not a thrill seeker or an adventure seeker. <laughs> um, yeah, I went to the climbing wall with my kids the other day and got scared about 10 feet up the wall and went down while my middle one was just kind of continuing to climb to the top. So it's not, I'm not an adrenaline junkie. That's not what it is. What happens is I go to the country with one, you know, with one curiosity, which is a totally, you know, appropriate one. I want to study the opposition. I want to understand this. I want to understand that. And I get there and I just get curious about more things. And then I get I just keep pulling threads and pulling and pulling and pulling until I find myself in like a prison cell with Somali pirates playing Sudoku, right? You know, um, or yeah. you know, As I find you myself under a pile of, you know, bananas being driven, you know, from you know, Uganda across the border into eastern Congo while the two countries are at war, or sneaking into a Palestinian refugee camp in, you know, southern Lebanon, which is home to a group called Hospital Ansar, and kind of, you know, having them sort of throw what, you know, I thought was a suicide bomber vest or something of that nature on me, but wasn't. Uh, they were just playing a practical joke on me. Um, or, you know, ending up in, you know, a situation where, you know, you're interviewing, you know, different militants around the world. And, and it's just that thread of curiosity. You just kind of keep pulling and pulling and pulling. And then you wake up and you and you sort of find yourself in a situation. You're like, I think I'm really not supposed to be here. And I think I'm really, I, I think, I, I think, yeah. th I think this is a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah. You, uh, it's like when you, when you scan the horizon, you see the, you see the whole world in all its variety. And so uh, let me take you home to America. Uh, let's start with, you know, some of your more, we'll say exotic interests. Uh, yeah, I know you like your presidential historian. We're going to get into the book in a second, but tell me about what's the deal with the presidential hair. So I've always collected. That's, a, that's adventurous. So, so since I was eight years old and went to a flea market with my parents and bought a little bag of presidential campaign buttons, um, and there's some armchair psychology here. I bought them and I was so excited. And then I got a price guide and I realized I was sitting on campaign buttons worth like tens of thousands of dollars until I read oh, Crackle wow. Barrel reproduction on the back of them. And I still remember <laughs> being an eight-year-old crying about the fact that I had gone from being, you know, worth tens of thousands of dollars, you know, for a bag that I bought for $10 to having been duped by, you know, the sort of the allure of, you know, reproductions. Um, but I never lost my interest in presidential campaign memorabilia. And I was always interested in the presidency. I, I have no idea why. I, I, you know, it's just, it's from, since I was a kid, I've been obsessed with the, the, the presidency. And um, that collection has evolved over time. Um, and, you know, I'm one. There's two ways to look at history. Some people kind of experience it from afar and read about it in a detached way, and maybe they even collect. And then you get people like me who, you know, you want to get as physically close to the history as possible. Well, and so what I yeah. like about you know a document that's signed by George Washington is I can put my hand on that piece of paper. Um, and I'm touching the same thing that George Washington touched. And all of a sudden I start thinking, what was he thinking when he signed this? What were the circumstances? And you feel like you're there with it. And, you know, at a certain point, like signed documents, it just didn't give me my kick anymore. I needed I needed more. And so I started collecting um, um, locks of presidential hair that come with rich provenance. Um, and I now have um, 11 different uh, presidents locks of hair. And some people think this is weird, except for the fact that, you know, in the 19th century, um, people didn't ask for um, autographs. They would write the president of the United States and they'd say, I'd like a lock of your hair. And the president would attach a lock of their hair to a piece of paper wow. and sign it. And it wasn't the autograph they got back. They were happy about it. It was the lock of hair. Uh, so this stuff does exist. I've done a little bit of market making around it. Um <laughs> <laughs> but th th there's something about the hair where it makes me feel even closer to the to the president. Oh, I love it. I love it. Do um, 
What's what's one of the coolest ones? Tell me about the Abraham Lincoln piece. So um, I have six long strands of Abraham Lincoln's hair um, taken from the most famous lock of Lincoln's hair the night of his assassination. And I know it's authentic because it's one of the locks that has the greatest provenance. And the guy who's my hair dealer, uh, John Resnikoff, who I get a lot of this stuff from, <laughs> hair he owns the lock. And um we agreed that when I bought my first Lincoln signed document from him, I would get six strands of hair as kind of a kickback. And I stood there and I watched him with tweezers pull six strands of hair and he meant to wow. pull six smaller ones. Um, and I ended up, in his words, getting a great deal. Well, <laughs> that's very exciting. I love it. You're, I mean, this is taking you, this curiosity is taking you to presidential hair parts of the world, uh, tech, finance, and towering proportions. So it's a, uh, it, it's working for you, so keep it up. Now let's let's go to the book. Now the subject is presidential history. If it's if it's narrowly defined, you have these seven presidents, uh, what their life like was afterward. But after reading it, it truly is very universally applied. You're not just reading a history book. You're it it, it could almost be in a uh, a vibrant self help section or a vibrant how to section, especially the way you break down the book. One, I'm really curious about what do you think the lessons are as you read the book for people today? One, I'm thinking of things like we have strong opinions when you're in the moment, but those opinions will change. People calm down about George W. Bush. They calm down about Truman. They calm down about Hoover. Legacies change. And I found myself reminding myself that as we're going into a presidential election that not a lot of people want to have. Um it's a good reminder that just to sort of chill out and in the grand arc of history, play, be steady, be present, but play the long game. Is that just me pr projecting it to your book, my own kind of personal value system, <laughs> or is that a real thing? No, look, it's, it's kind of the exact reaction I want from the book. You know, the book's called Life After Power, and it looks at seven U.S. presidents and their search for purpose after the White House. And part of the reason I wrote this book is um, I'm a pretty introspective person. And the most common question that people ask all of us who kind of put ourselves in the type A ambitious category, you're always being asked what you're doing next, right? You're like at a new job for two weeks. And they're like, so what are you going to do next? Um, and you realize we're going to be asked this so many times throughout our lives. There's no blueprint for it. Um, how you get after that question evolves and is cumulative and changes over time and as a function of circumstances. Um, and yet there's no playbook for it. And, you know, as somebody who, again, has studied the presidency for so long, it's the most dramatic retirement in the entire world. Um, and yet nobody had done kind of a comprehensive study of whether or not it was an interesting transition. Anyone managed to kind of do anything that eclipsed their time in office. And so I just kind of decided to get after it. And what I will tell you, the through line, right? So I write about, you know, Thomas Jefferson as a serial entrepreneur and serial founder. I write about John Quincy Adams, who's the best, you know, sort of case study for a second act. Grover Cleveland's the best case study for a comeback. You know, William Howard Taft is a great case study for those who defer a dream um, and eventually achieve it at the end. Um, Hoover is a great case study for how you recover what you once lost. Jimmy Carter is a case study for what it means to basically institutionalize being a former version of your greatest act. And George W. Bush is a great case study and how to totally move on and separate and close that chapter um, and embark on a, on a, on a totally new um, a, a totally new life. And there, there's there's one dominant core through line with all of this. And then there's some kind of tactical best practices that I observe. I would say that I wrote about those seven presidents because honestly, there was nobody else worth writing about. These seven really stood out and everybody else, I think, was kind of in a distant second or third category. And what each of these seven presidents had in common, there was something that they were deeply, deeply principled about deeply principled about. And they had the self-awareness either when they left office or shortly thereafter um, to know what that was and to double down on it. Um, and in the post-presidency, let it guide them in terms of what they did next. Um, and that's true with all seven of them, right? So, you know, Thomas Jefferson was principled about this idea that if you didn't build an institution to train the next generation, there'd be no one to carry the torch 
and fix all the flaws that were left by the founding fathers. John Quincy Adams was deeply principled about freedom of speech and the right to petition. And it's only once he sees that thwarted during his you know tenure as an ex-president serving in the House of Representatives that he ends up in a much lower station, finding a much higher cause of abolition. And again, the list goes on. Some of the tactical best practices, though, are the importance of separating um, from your previous chapter. George Bush is the only one that's done it perfectly. Um, the others did it enough. Um, you know, the other one that I think is really important is having some kind of endless learning experience. Um, you know, a lot of these men lived really long. So why, you know, Herbert Hoover, Hoover lived to be 90. Jefferson lived to be 82, which is remarkable in 1825. Um, you know, they, they're, they were so mentally busy that they sustained a mental stimulus long after their bodies gave out. So like Jefferson had to spend his days riding his horse around because he had read in a medical journal that it helps with chronic diarrhea. It was something that like really, really plagued him. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, yeah. Uncomfortable. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so so that endless learning experience is something really, really core. I love that. And, I'll, you know, to, to bring it home and, and relatable, uh, I don't know if I told you this, Jared, but I mean, back when you gave me advice that is consistent with what you were writing about in the book and what you were just saying, which as, as we were transitioning from, from Gen X to Alder and, and then working our way out of the COVID world and all that disruption, it, it was, it is, it was especially, but is exceedingly difficult to build an institution that, that shapes, convenes, and deploys any type of people. And in our case, you know, a leadership class and established leaders and individuals. But you said to me, as I was struggling with trying to be a steward of the institution and the vision, you said, Michael, you're reinventing um, Gen X and Alder, but don't forget to reinvent yourself. And when you said it, it really hit me like I could feel it emotionally. Um, and so one, I just appreciate you with that encouragement personally um, and that belief and sticking with us through that journey. But I'm curious, has that always been something that was an insight for you or did it click as you were reading the uh these biographies you know it's interesting you know sometimes you just sort of say things and you don't realize um that you know you <laughs> that i landed that, no I mean, I mean sometimes yeah but sometimes you you <laughs> sometimes you don't realize you have an insight until you say it out loud or until you get the feedback loop that somebody heard it and it was transformational but i do think look we're not you know we're not supposed to you know be the same person at every step of our way we're supposed to be true to our values and our core principles, um, but we are supposed to evolve as 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 human beings, right? And so I look at who I was professionally in my first job, my second job, my third job, before I had kids, after I have kids, and you know the goal is to kind of maintain your core, but to evolve and adapt and allow yourself to be influenced by changes around you without giving up who you are. And I think if I look at each of these seven presidents that I write about. Um, you know, they lost the thing that defines them publicly, like majorly, majorly defines them publicly. And so honestly, for a lot of these ex-presidents, it's like adapt or you're screwed, right? I mean, it's it's you can't hang on to the presidency. Um, you know, George W. Bush says you, you can't long for what you don't have. And constitutionally, you don't have it anymore when it's done. Um, and so, you know, the one who kind of, you know, I think had the hardest time with that, you know, was the one who was the most, in some respects, deliberate about his next move, which was was Carter. Carter made a decision immediately after losing his bid for reelection in 1980 that he wasn't going to run again. But he also simultaneously made a decision that he wasn't going to stop doing the things that he was keen on doing during pr his presidency. And he ran out of time because the American people fired him. And so he just decided, you know what, the presidency is not ever never ending, but the former president can build an administration that is never ending. And that's essentially what he did. One of the comments you made in the book was that it reveals their true motives or their true character uh, after their presidency, post-presidency. And so I'm curious about Truman, Taft, uh, Hoover, the ones who, to me, kind of kept going, but they really tried to stay true to themselves, but respectful of those around them. Bush is another one. And so what do you think of the big the big things that they were nurturing? Was it faith? Was it self-mastery? Was it character? Was it some memory from a childhood that kept them alive? 
So, um, so again, it comes back to their, their, their nurturing their core principles and their, and their values. And what's interesting is each one of the seven presidents that I write about, they did this in a really different way. So in the case of Herbert Hoover, here's a man who lived to be 90 years old and, you know, he is defined by three and a half years of his presidency during the Great Depression. Before he was president, he was known as the great humanitarian. He was the man who fed the world after World War I. He led relief efforts after the great Mississippi flood in 1927, mostly aiding African-Americans. Um, he was an orphan who rose to become a self-made millionaire. He was courted by both parties, and he basically waltzes into the White House in 1928. When he loses his bid for re-election to FDR, he also loses his good name, and he loses his status as a humanitarian, as a businessman, um, as you know, this kind of you know, great bipartisan figure. And he wrestles in those early years between the vanity of getting his name back um, and the sort of more principled drive to get his platform back. And he, after FDR dies in 1945, after 12 years in exile, political ex self-imposed political exile, Truman resurrects him and Hoover once again becomes the great humanitarian. He feeds the world after World War II, just as he had done after World War I. He's called upon by both Truman and Eisenhower to reorganize the executive branch of government. And in his final act, Joe Kennedy, JFK's father, calls on him to broker a kind of a rapprochement between the victorious JFK and the defeated Richard Nixon to show bipartisan unity. You know, Herbert Hoover was a man who needed to be needed. Um, and Ooh. what he wanted to, not my line, that's, you know, Arthur Brooks talks about, you know, the sort of the human yeah. condition of the need to be needed. And, you know, Hoover spends his whole post-presidency trying to get back that which he has lost. Um, and he actually recovers his name in his lifetime, and then it gets pounded again posthumously. William Howard Taft's story is a very different one, right? Taft loved courts. He revered the system of justice. He never wanted to be president. From when he was a little boy, all he wanted to do was serve on the Supreme Court. Um, but he was a sort of victim of not you know, um, not sort of investing in his own ambitions and instead becoming a steward for the ambitions of those around him, his wife, Nellie, his brothers, and his mentor and friend, Theodore Roosevelt, who all wanted him to be president. Um, but he never gave up hope. And he he's sort of a case study for anyone who, you know, they got an opportunity to achieve their dream, um, but the circumstances weren't right or the timing wasn't right or it didn't work for their family or they couldn't move to this location or financially they couldn't do it. There's so many people in this situation. And William Howard Taft is a fascinating case study of someone who never gave up on that dream. And his last 10 years of life, he gets appointed not just to the Supreme Court, but as Chief Justice. And they're the happiest years of his life. Now, one of the things is they the expression of their values would manifest differently. But one of the things that struck me is every one of them did the work. Like they, they, they were diligent, um, about self-reflection. They were diligent about what they knew. They were diligent about using their influence well, but there were also these higher minded character traits and values, uh, about some of them that stood out to me. One is there is the statesmanlike quality where they would take the high road at times. Uh, they, in other words, they just were trying to avoid being petty. Um, there were many times when Taft could have been exceedingly petty. There were times when he even denied taking a job that he really, really wanted. Um, you know, Hoover coming in and bringing Nixon and Kennedy and Nixon and Kennedy at the time hated each other. And so they overcame it to come together for the good of the country. And so I'm trying to, I see these moments and I see them as signals of a, of a quote, better time, but maybe that's not the way to think about it. Maybe it's just, these are virtues that we should bring forward and we're not doing that. I don't see political leaders today being willing to do that. So is this a previous time? Is this something that could be revived? Uh, am I being quaint or am I being practical? Well, so first of all, so they, they were certainly capable of being petty, but when they were petty, it was a function of their principles, right? So uh, Herbert Hoover, you know, could, could be very petty publicly towards FDR and was, but it was because on principle, he felt that FDR was sort of driving the country into this kind of collectivist mindset. Jimmy Carter was very principled about his views on war and his views on peace. And so, you know, President Clinton sends Carter, you know, former president of his own party to Pyongyang in 1994 as a messenger and is surprised when he turns on CNN and Carter has announced that he's negotiated a whole new nuclear, you know, treaty, right? So they're all very capable of being petty and they, 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 they were at times. But 
there's a larger question here. So if you go back to the founding of the Republic, this idea of a peaceful transfer of power, that was not a thing. There were very few examples of it. And so the founding fathers who were trying to architect a republic that was the antithesis of a monarchy that they were sort of trying to distance themselves from, um, they worried about this question of what to do with ex-presidents. So Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 42, he asked the question, does it serve the stability and the well-being of the republic to have half a dozen men who'd been elevated to the presidency wandering around the rest of us like discontented ghosts? Um, and more than 200 years later, we actually have an answer to Hamilton's question, which is former presidents can be allies to their successors, um, either actively or by virtue of fading away, or they can be their successors' most quarrelsome and formidable adversary, which we also see today. And if you look at the current context, first of all, the idea of former presidents is a feature of democracy. It's not a bug. Um, authoritarian systems don't have former presidents, or if they do, they're incarcerated or you know some other ill fate. Um, but we're in the very first. We're likely about to enter the very first and only time, other than 1892, where you have a rematch between two presidents who are the nominees of the two major parties. You know, Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. We have not seen that since Grover Cleveland versus Benjamin Harrison in 1892. There's two differences. Cleveland never lost the popular vote in 1888. He just lost the Electoral College. And he lost the Electoral College because he stood on his principle of being against a high tariff. And in his words, he'd never been happier than when he threw away the presidency. Um, he said, what's the use of being president if you don't stand for something? Um, so we don't have that element here. And then second, these are the two oldest presidential candidates in history. They've eclipsed themselves, who four years ago were the oldest two presidential candidates in history. And you have to ask yourself the question, perhaps we're in this situation right now because we forgot what to do with ex-presidents. Um, and you have two presidents who don't want to give up power. And this election is not just an election between Biden and Trump over who's going to be the next president. It's an election between the same two men over who's going to be the next ex-president. And whoever's the next ex-president, it's not going to be a long runway. So because of this sort of weird, you know, we have these two old guys running um, this really weird state, I tend to be less emotional about this election and more interested in the next two elections. So I feel like they're going to be a bit more reflective about where we're going versus where we were. Um, and so as I think, try to think through and beyond the moment, so to speak, I'm also thinking like, what do we need to ground ourselves in? And there were a few principles that you had that you had some stories around. One of those is to remember, say, first principles, that if you if you stick to these first principles and you follow, like one of yours might be follow your curiosity, it takes you somewhere. But there's others, like in the case of Hoover, you know, he wants to be of service. But one of the ones that, it, that I was curious about is like John Quincy Adams, you know, he was an abolitionist, but that wasn't his issue. What his gateway drug, so to speak, to, to being a champion of abolition was due process and in a way free speech. And so that migrated him elsewhere. How much do you see that with these different, these different presidents, but also people, you know, today, um, cause you know, a lot of really interesting people, Connelly's Rice, Hillary Clinton, Eric Schmidt, how much are they sort of really trying to be conscious of a core principle and then that taking them into a new domain of knowledge and contribution to the world around them? I think you have two types of people who experience life after power. You have people who busy themselves with activities and you have people who busy themselves manifesting their core principles. Um, and it's the latter that finds greater success from, from, from what I've seen, right? So, you know, what's interesting about John Quincy Adams, you know, slavery was not a huge issue that was talked about publicly between the period of the Missouri Compromise in 1820 and the 1830s. It had just been kind of temporarily settled along the Mason-Dixon line. And, you know, by the time John Quincy Adams, you know, enters the House of Representatives as an ex-president, um, that's still the case. And, you know, he doesn't enter the House of Representatives with a purpose or a cause. He enters with core principles, but he's there because he doesn't know what else to do. And the only thing he's ever known how to do is serve because his presidency, it's an intermission between two of the greatest acts in American history. And the first one had been architected for him by his famous parents. And it was a life of service that made him president. And when he lost his bid for reelection in 1828, he couldn't be president again. 
Um, he'd already served in the Senate. He'd already been Secretary of State. He'd already served as an ambassador and envoy to every country and you know um, royal court that the U.S. had relations with. The only thing left was the sort of the lowly House of Representatives. And so he, he shows up there um, and doesn't really know what to do. And you know he does what you know members of Congress did in the 1830s, which is every Monday you read the petitions that come into you. And so he starts reading them, and some of them are from abolitionists. And you know, the reaction from the slaveocracy in Congress surprises him. And he takes as a direct affront to the right to petition. And so the more they sort of are up in arms about him reading these abolitionist petitions, the more loudly he reads them, the more loudly he reads them, the more demand there is to send them in his direction. All of a sudden, he's inundated with them. And, you know, abolition in the 1830s was a fringy, radical cause. It was not mainstream at all. And so while John Quincy Adams abhorred the institution of slavery, he would not have described himself as an abolitionist. They were few and far between in Congress. And, um, you know, but but this, this, this sort of, you know, um, attack on the right to petition and then the decision by the slaveocracy in Congress to pass an actual rule that tries to cancel him and silence him by saying you actually can't talk about slavery in Congress. It's an existential threat to one of his founding principles, which is the freedom of speech. And so, you know, he just the, the cause ends up overwhelming him and defining him. And he wakes up somewhere in between his fourth and fifth term in Congress, and he just accepts that he's an abolitionist. And what he realizes is he's taken a fringe movement and he's completely mainstreamed it probably a decade before it was ready to happen. And to put the sort of icing on the cake on this, John Quincy Adams was a man who began his career appointed by George Washington serving in his administration. He finishes his career dying in 1848 in his ninth term as an ex-president in the House of Representatives serving alongside a freshman congressman named Abraham Lincoln. So, so think about that connection between multiple generations, right? You know, Adam, John Quincy Adams was the, 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 the connection between the founding fathers and everyone else, but he also became this connection between the founding fathers who wrote a constitution that allowed for slavery to persist um, and a generation that skipped him that would go on to lead and preside over the emancipation of slaves. I love it. I mean, one of the things I, I one of the things I take away from me is, uh, one, you have, there have always been boisterous times in American history, uh, volatile, feisty. Um, what I think is different is that in previous generations, they were a bit more effective and developed as you know character, knowledge, wisdom, and they put that to bear when they duped it out in a free society. But the sort of fighting over power, uh, fighting over priorities, the always was, it was a constant and, and that's a constant today. It's just, I, th I think what we lack is depth of potential previous times. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. No, no, I, I, I agree with you completely. I think, you know, leadership, you know, just because somebody's in a position of power doesn't mean that they can get people to follow them. And that's particularly true in an era of social media. You look at our universities yeah, I... right now. I mean, I'll tell you one of, one of my favorite stories from the book, October 4th, 1825, um, Thomas Jefferson is 82 years old. He's founded or completed you know, the third trilogy in his life's work, which is the founding of the University of Virginia as the first arts and sciences university. Um, it's one of three things etched on his tombstone. Being president of the United States was not one of them. And on that day, a group of dozens of students covering their faces with masks begin rioting across the university, chanting down with your European professors. They throw bags of <laughs> urine at some of the teachers. They beat a professor senseless with his cane, leaving him bloodied and humiliated. Um, and Jefferson the next day calls an all-school assembly to meet before the disciplinary committee. The disciplinary committee on October 5th, 1825 for the University of Virginia consisted of Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe, the most intimidating disciplinary committee at a university past, present, and future. And Jefferson was a man not just of principle, he was a man who exuded his principles. His, 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 his principles literally sweated from his body. And so he stood up at 82 years old and attempted to speak to address the students who wouldn't give each other up. And he starts hysterically crying and bawling, can't get words out, is 
you know, inconsolable. And James Madison, who was all about five foot one, you know, puts his hand on Jefferson's shoulder and has him sit down. And Madison can barely stand up before the sight of Thomas Jefferson so distraught causes the students to confess one by one. And I tell that story because leadership is not just the actions you take, the decisions you make. It's the principles that you exude and stand for. And so for the rector of a university to so embody a set of principles um, that the very sight of him crying was enough to get a handful of students to confess leading to their expulsion, that's leadership, right? It, it, yeah. it's, it's, and, and we've lost that today. Absolutely. And even though he was uh, crying, he was asserting himself and he was being authentic. Um, he was also being uh, an adult because you have you have youthful youthful recalcitrants like that today, but you also you don't have a lot of the leaders being leaders or being adults. On this point, this point about authenticity is 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 important because leaders today, you know, if you if you look out and canvas the leadership of the world, it's very it's gotten harder and harder to be authentic. You know, as a leader of an organization, you're at risk of being canceled. Um, you know, the sort of ecosystem of lawyers and HR people kind of overwhelm. You know, committees who write statements for you. Um, it just you know, leaders have sort of the impulse to be authentic, but um, there's an apparatus around them driving down that authenticity. And I think the best leaders are the ones who, you know, they're just comfortable breaking through that and acting on on impulse. Um, and their judgment um, is part of what makes them distinguishable from the committees of people around them. And I think this is part of why George W. Bush's post-presidency has gone so well. You know, if you look at the active living presidents, only one of them has had his popularity double, and that's George W. Bush. And he left office more unpopular than any of them. And he's left, he's invested less in his legacy than any of his active contemporaries. And so it's worthy of a case study. I think some of it is his reverence for the Washington principle of one president at a time, which in a very dogmatic, disciplined way, he does more than anybody else. But I think some of it is, you know, with the presidency extracted from him and frankly, the power removed from him, what is left behind is a very authentic man that I think the American people find endearing. So when he's painting veterans and he talks about how America owes these veterans a great service and he's painting to honor them, I think people believe that. And I believe it's true. I spent two days interviewing him up in Kenny Bunkport in, in, in um, 2020. And he's just about the most authentic man I've ever met. I love that. You know, there's this, um, in a way, I think your book could be considered in the canon of kind of like mirrors for princes, uh, education for leaders and teaching for leaders. Uh, on the theme of nurturing your curiosity and on the theme that these leaders were very not just well-read and well-studied, uh, they were very intentional about their own development and their their own growth in a way. One thing I've heard from Jeffrey Rosen, who I know you know now at the National Constitution Center, is two things. One, he's writing a bit about what did they study? And he also talks about the second founding is the the Civil War era. And so I want to use the, the in my question, I want to use the uh, expansive understanding of founders. I'm thinking of the Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, but I'm also thinking of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln and Abigail Adams. What is, if you were taking their experience, their lives, and doing like a curriculum for a leader who wants to embody those values, um, who wants to champion those ideas, would you just take sort of like Thomas Jefferson's playbook for the University of Virginia at the time and say, do this? Or would there be some other body of work that people should study and learn? Look, I think you have to study the full arc of history, right? I think part of the problem with, you know, the sort of tech movement these days is they don't study history. So, you know, an obsession with the future without reflecting on the past leads to a lot of myopia. And, um, you know, look, there's a reason that a lot of these early presidents, Jefferson, John Quincy Adams, they obsessively read the classics. Um, it's because they, 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 you know, they, they weren't the first ones to think about democracy. You know, everything that they did had roots in some kind of classical thinking or classical 
body of work and what they studied was why those ideas didn't manifest themselves earlier. And they learned from the past. They studied the past. They didn't take the past literally. And I think that that's one of the things that they would kind of advise leaders today, which is study history, right? You know, history is not just some like non-commercial, you know, you know, kind of interesting thing that you sit on your couch and, and, and watch on, on television. You know, there's nothing that we see today that doesn't have some historical frame of reference. Okay. I have a few kind of personal questions now and, and some takeaways. Uh, you have a quote in your, you, you have a quotation in your book and it's that uh, even a great man is, could be summed up in one sentence. And I'm not going to ask you that about you, but I want to, I do want to ask you, what do you think? I know that right now you're, you're in the middle of the book and you, you're now a leader at Goldman Sachs, but you've, you've spanned so many different sectors, so many different schools of thought, so many different disciplines. Um, how are you thinking about the next act in your life? Or let me phrase it differently, your next curiosity, like what's, what's emerging for you? So I think th this book was a really interesting introspection for me and also very humbling at the same time, because you realize, you know, 45 men have become president 46 times. Most of them are not remembered. So you end up very sort of humbled in your own ambitions. And uh, at the same time, studying these presidencies and understanding that means that you stop taking your professional ambitions so seriously, which is different than taking your, like, I take my work seriously. I want to have an impact, but I take the weight off of my shoulders and I feel more at peace professionally. And what that allows me to do is not worry about what I'm doing next. It allows me to basically reflect at the end of each day and say, what did I enjoy about today? I talked to interesting people. I learned something new. I had an impact here. I had some good laughs there. You know, I forged a good partnership, whatever it might be. And my answer to what's next is I want to wake up tomorrow and do it all over again. Um, I've never, I've never been in a stage of my life where I've been able to, it's not tempering my, I'm not less ambitious, but my ambition is now channeled more towards the present than the future. Right. And, and I, 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 I did actually get a lot of this from George W. Bush. He has a very quarrelsome view of legacy chasing. And he's very careful to say, it's not that I don't care about legacy. It's not that I don't think legacy matters, but I'm quarrelsome with the idea that one would waste the present investing in the future. And I'm even more quarrelsome with the idea that you would waste the present, you know, in your second half of life or your final chapter of life for a future that you're not even going to be alive for. You know, and he jokes that he read three books about George Washington the year before, and they're still writing books about the other George. By the time they get to him, you know, he's going to be long gone. And, and his views on legacy really stuck with me, right? There, there's anyone that has a family and kids, there, there's one thing for sure, which is a guaranteed legacy is your offspring and your family, not your name on a building, not the size of your house, not the body of work that you left behind. Your books will eventually be out of print and no longer available on Amazon or whatever succeeds Amazon. You know, what will be left is those intimate relationships that defined your life. And it's a really, I feel so fortunate to like be thinking about this now. It's funny, at first I was like, why am I writing a book about retirement at 42 years old? And now I'm so glad that I did because, you know, I feel like the decisions you make at 42 years old mentally prepare you for decisions that you might otherwise feel like you're making under duress when you're like 82 years old. Yeah, uh, thank you to that. You mentioned impact a few times. I, I think a key ingredient of impact, and one thing we try to nurture with Alder, is really tying together these lessons of history, ideas, humanities, human flourishing, with being aware of what's going on around you and how you're showing up, and then how that stewards us into the future. It, do you have a very distinct way of defining impact, or do you think it should be something that is broader and dynamic? I'm trying to think about impact more in the present. You know, and, and, and again, not like what change am I going to affect? What cause am I going to champion? You know, but more just did today feel right? And if it did. Oh, I love that. You know, just did, did, did today feel right? That's a much better endorphin than like, shoot, there's this thing that, you know, by the end of the decade, I need to accomplish. And like, you know, I'm nowhere near close enough to that yet. And what if this happens? It's it just the, to, to focus on impact 
more than 24 hours out to me just like comes with all kinds of worrying and anxiety and like lack of being present. And I don't want to confuse you into thinking I'm like so disciplined about this. It's like my own kind of journey and thing that I'm grappling with. But I find when I'm able to do what I'm saying right now, I'm much, much happier. I'm like more chill and at peace. Like by all accounts, the job I have right now is more intense than any job I've ever had. And yet I feel less stressed out and worried and anxious than I've than I've ever been. And I think it's a function of just kind of like mentally positioning the way you think about impact in a in a in a very different way. Well, it's also translated to some very disciplined tactical things. I remember when you had a mission to plank in every country or or on every day and that you were working out and you're still working out every single day for a long time. So my point is it translates in the big you know, presidential story and big finance guy and also just showing up every day. I wanted I wanted to click in quickly on how do you see yourself as nurturing this curiosity and this kind of citizenship and statesmanship in your kids? You you have these three awesome little girls and they're observing you and they're observing Rebecca and they're seeing they're seeing you guys be very curious and engaged people. Are you are you just kind of letting them observe you or are you intentional about exposing them to things? How do you think about their development as 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 little humans but also as citizens? So what I'm trying to do is not parent like an algorithm, meaning, you know, not say here's what you need to do, here's what you need to care about, here's what you need to think. Um, and instead create a set of circumstances for them to be exposed to things and get excited, not get excited, want to do more of it, want to do something different. So, you know, I think getting them to just see other places, you know, so traveling with them. Um, I'm a big believer in try every sport once, you know, but pay attention to which ones your kids like doing, whether it's convenient for you or, you know, fulfills your childhood athletic ambitions or not. And then I think, you know, so much of what your how your kids are raised, I think, is a function of how you show up for them, right? And so if you're on your phone all the time, it sends a message to them that that phone is is maybe not as important to them, but competition uh, for your attention. and it is, right? And so, you know, again, that that idea of being present that I mentioned at work, it can't be the case that I can accomplish that at work and I can't accomplish that at home. And yet it's much harder because we're addicted to our phones and we're addicted to screens. And so like, that's kind of a big part of the journey as well. And by the way, the formula for happiness is, you know, personal happiness plus professional happiness equals like life happiness. Um, You can function having one without the other. You can't function without having either. And so if your personal life isn't happy, you're entirely dependent on what happens with your career. And sometimes you have very little agency over that. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's 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 simple and pure, but it's powerful. So a couple of closing questions. What are you reading right now? I know you're, again, you're on the book tour and you're busy, but uh, what, or really rephrase it. In addition to bulk buying uh, Live Up to Power and sharing it with a lot of people, what are other things that people should read? And Children of Jihad and... I mean, and uh, accidental presidents and all of the above. I, I really encourage people to read history, right? Like you have a war in the Middle East right now, you know, read some of the seminal books about why the Middle East looks the way that it does, as opposed to modern commentary, commentary about like, you know, you know, this is what's going to happen and that's going to happen. You know, history, you know, you, you can't evaluate the future without having some kind of a shared set of facts. Um, and, you know, again, I think we don't read enough enough history. What would be a good book to you'd recommend on that? I always tell people if you're interested in the Middle East, the the book to read is is a piece to end all peace by David Frumkin. Um, it's kind of the seminal book on um, the breakup of empire and you know the the formation of the modern Middle East. And then I always tell people also to read you know Barbara Tuckman's 1923 Pulitzer Prize winning book Guns of August um, because it's a seminal book on the causes of World War One. And there's so many books about World War II, but World War I, to me, is filled with kind of prescriptions and case studies because it's a very, very dramatic transition that the world goes through. Not that World War II wasn't, but the shock factor of, you know, you know the sort of transition from a world of empire to the system of sovereign states that had been imagined by the various components of the Peace of Westphalia 
um, I think are found in the aftermath of World War One. Well, I, I, I totally agree um, on the topic of World War One. We did a trip uh, your fellow older members of Gen X at the time. We did a trip for the 100th anniversary of World War One that Ken, Ken Melman had pioneered. So we went to France and went to Ardennes, Verdun, and we also went into Gallipoli to see this. And one of the things that was interesting is just how personality driven it was, but also power structures at the time allowed a lot more of that. And then secondly, how it started to become about high ideals through struggle and then democracy as an ideal just sort of just took off. But it's, it's on the one hand, it was like, look for the high ideals was a takeaway for me and nurture them. Another one, it was to be humble and cautious of consolidations of power and sort of a Game of Thrones uh, like situation, which I think is another caution to how we're thinking and imposing a framework onto the Middle East today. It's like kind of overly simplistic in that way. Now, you, you've helped um, Alder and our members get involved in all kinds of different causes and initiatives, online and offline de-radicalization, counter-extremism, elevating the importance of history. Alder members in general, but I would also just say, let's say business elites. And I, I really hate that word business elites, but I think you know what I'm getting at, a leadership class. What do you see are the qualities of both Alder members and influential entrepreneurs and business people who are contributing to the country at large? What are the types of things that they are doing? What are their character traits? And of course, uh, any reflections on Alder in general, because our, I know not only our members will be listening to this, but a lot of them will. And so if there's anything we want to reinforce to that community, please let me know. Look, I've been a member of Alder and Gen X before, and I think going back to 2007. So I've been a, I've been a member. Yeah. I've been a member a long time. And so I don't join a lot of things. And I think part of what I've always appreciated about the organization is all of my interactions with the community and the community is made up of people who have been incredibly successful in different types of business has always been void of any kind of transactional element, right? So the, the, the sort of the denominator for Alder is a group of people who just care about the world, want to do good, want to have a good time and value relationship over transaction. And I think that's something that's really special. I've always thought that if you surround yourself with the smartest, most interesting, well-intentioned people, you don't need to do a transaction. You end up doing business with them because you want to. You end up doing good with them because you want to. And I think Alder really kind of captures the spirit of that. Well, so do you, Jared. I'm grateful for our friendship over the years, uh, for your support. And we will definitely be encouraging people to read this book. Uh, obviously, we want to help you with spreading the book, but I just think this is such an important uh, topic, both from understanding history and the perspective it gives us, but also I know a lot of people are really struggling with purpose and reinventing themselves and meaning and where do they fit, and you give them some perspective about how to live their own lives. I think that's pretty darn awesome of you. So right. thanks Thank for being a friend. Thank you. Thanks Good for doing you. what you do. Love you, man. I'll right. talk to you later. Bye. Bye. So there you have it. Dropped a bunch of knowledge bombs about history. You'll definitely sound smarter at cocktail parties. Go ahead and use it. But please remember some of these takeaways. Stay humble. Look for depth. Look for authenticity. Take the high road. See the great beyond. Get there steadily. And remember that living freely and living purposely, it's not always going to be neat. It's not always going to be easy. It's always going to require effort. But your life and the lives of others will be better for it if you choose to see it through. And so find that truth and wisdom and life after power. Enjoy. Thanks, everybody. I'll see you later. Please subscribe, share it with friends, do all the things that help the cause. Have a wonderful day.